You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, a Broadway-centric podcast where we take a 360-degree view of the theater through interviews with actors, writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. I'm Jamie Dumont, recovering marketing associate, personal chef, and event planner. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with StageLeft.NYC. This week and next week, we're doing something a little different with the show. That's right. Uh, As promised earlier in our season, we're doing our first in-depth package show where you'll hear from multiple voices talking about a person or an event that has shaped or is still shaping the theater world. First up, a look at the life, work, and legacies of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. In case you somehow don't know, Bob Fosse was a dancer, choreographer, and director of stage and screen, whose distinctive style made him one of the greatest, if not the greatest, auteurs of the American musical theater. He racked up eight Tony Awards for work on stage, with musicals ranging from The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, and Redhead in the 1950s, to Sweet Charity in 1966, and Pippin, Chicago, and Dancing in the 1970s, not to mention his Academy Award-winning direction of the iconic 1972 film version of Cabaret, and his autobiographical masterpiece, All That Jazz, in 1979. Actress and dancer Gwen Verdon was the hottest and most acclaimed musical comedy star of the 1950s, teaming up with Bob on Damn Yankees and going on to be his muse and wife. Along the way, she won four Tony Awards for her star turns in Can Can, Damn Yankees, New Girl in Town, and Redhead. She created the iconic role of Charity Valentine in Sweet Charity and was the impetus behind the 1975 musical Chicago, for which her legendary performance as Roxy Hart would be her last on Broadway. The FX miniseries Fosse Verdon, which premiered back in April, brought a renewed interest in Fosse and Verdon back into the popular culture and the cultural conversation. So we thought we'd talk to some people who actually knew and worked with them. Because Bob and Gwen work so closely together, we'll talk with our guests about both of them over the next two episodes— though you'll hear a little bit more about Bob in this first episode and more about Gwen in the next. Over the past few months, Rob and I sat down with Mimi Quillen, Jane Lanier, Chet Walker, and John Rubenstein, as well as Betty Buckley and Donna McKechnie, who we also interviewed for their own episodes of The Fabulous Invalid. Throughout this episode and the next, you'll hear their voices. So first, we'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Jane Lanier. I worked with Bob and Gwen initially on the revival of Sweet Charity, starting in 1985, opening in 1986 on Broadway. My name is Mimi Quillen. I worked with Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon on the 1985 revival, I think it was 85, revival of Sweet Charity, starring Miss Debbie Allen. And I worked as a performer, and then I was brought in to help them reconstruct the show, and I was also asked to be dance captain, so I know where all the bodies are buried. Hi, I'm Chet Walker, and uh, I have worked for both Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon together and separately. Hi, I'm John Rubenstein. I worked with Bob Fosse uh, in 1972 on the musical Pippin. That's our cast. Now on to the episode. Five, six, seven, eight. I first met Bob when I was rehearsing Night of a Hundred Stars 2, assisting Albert Stevenson. And we were in the Minskoff rehearsal studios. Um, they're no longer there anymore. But there was, there was no Google, right? No pictures. So I didn't know what Bob Fosse looked like. And I'm in the hallway, and there's this older gentleman, all in black, knee pads around his ankles, and he kept checking me out. And I'm like, Oh, who is this? You know, why is this guy checking me out? And one day I was sick, but as we do, you rehearse anyway. And I'm laying down on the couch, 
And um, oh, and prior to that, like I ran into him in the hall and he said hi to me and I'm like, hi. I like totally snubbed him and walked by. And then I'm sick and I'm laying on the couch during a break and he walks by again. He's checking me out. I'm like, oh my God, I'm sick. Um, and then somebody goes, oh my God, Buff Fosse checking you out like that? And I was like, that's Bob Fosse, <laughs> the person I've been snubbing all week. So that's how I met him. <laughs> Did he ever call you out on it? No. Oh, I thought he liked it, right? Probably, because he wasn't used to that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, then I auditioned for him for a replacement in dancing on a Sunday, I still remember, and I wore the same leotard that I wore the day I found out who he was. It's like a bumblebee, not really attractive, but anyway. Um, and I got kept all the way through, and they hired somebody that had done the show, but he asked us to, to come to a sweet charity audition. And I wear the same leotard, and Christopher Chadman, who was a friend, was assisting him, and I saw them talking about me and pointing at me. <laughs> and Bob Fosse walks over really close, and it's like, same leotard, smart. 700 girls auditioned for that show, between equity and non-equity. Um, I got a call back. There was about 90 of us. And in there was a lunch break. It was like from 10 to 6. And everyone was buzzing in the lobby after lunch. Cy Coleman's in the room. Cy Coleman's in the room. And I'm like, I don't know who that is. Because <laughs> I was a ballet dancer. And I don't know who that is. But I was n- so nervous because Fosse was in the room. And I go in to sing my 16-whatever bars. And as I'm singing, he gets up and slowly starts walking around me in a semicircle, staring at me as I'm singing. And then I do my big choreography where I take two steps forward, you know, and raise a hand for the big belt note at the end. And when I finished, she said, to walk towards a table like that, most people would walk backwards, give her sides. Two weeks later longest two weeks ever. Um, you know, I have an answering machine with a cassette tape in it. My light is blinking, so I pressed the button when I came home, and the message was, Jane, this is Bob Fosse. You got the show. Uh, the story I heard, which I have never told anyone, but, oh, what the hell. Gwen came into the show um, after it, Bob agreed to be with it, so he brought her in. And she and I had met while I was doing a production with the American Dance Machine, a benefit. And she said that she would only do it if, um, if she could have me meet. And I think that that's really sweet because I've never worked with her. But um, I think by then they had hired me. And she said, well, if you've hired her, then I want Mimi to assist. I had never worked with either one of them before. That's quite a compliment. It's a very big compliment. <laughs> the first time of working with... Um, the two of them together was transferring um, Danson from the Broadhurst to the Ambassador Theater. Uh, that was the first time working with them together. So Bob Fosse calls me at home, out of the blue, can you sing? I said, well, well we sort of. I've done musicals, I can certainly carry a tune, but nobody will ever pay money to hear me sing. Um, he said, can I come over? I said, yeah, absolutely. I said to my wife, Bob Fosse's coming. She said, oh, my God, Bob. So they knew each other. My wife made a lovely dinner. Um, she was eight months pregnant at that point. And, uh, and, and I sat down at the piano and played uh, two Laura Nero songs. Oh Laura Nero, goodness. who was my idol and remains so. And I played them and sang two of them. And he said, okay. And then we sat on the couch, and he had brought the script of Pippin, and he read all the parts, and I read Pippin. And we read the whole play from beginning to end. We had dinner. He left. Um, we went to bed, my wife and I, and our house was such that the, the stairs led right to the bedroom door. You know, it was in the Beverly Glen. So we're turning out the lights, and there's a knock on the bedroom door. It was 11.30 or something at night. I opened the door. It's Fosse. He hands me a tape, a cassette. He says, learn the second song. Come to New York in five days. Second song was Corner of the Sky. 
it was Stephen Schwartz playing and singing all of the songs of Pippin. So I did. Rivers belong where they can ramble. Eagles belong where they can fly. I've got to be where my spirit can run free. Gotta find my corner. And I went to New York and went to the theater, and they had put an ad in the New York Times that day um, <laughs> saying any young man between the ages of 18 and 30 show up at the, I think it was the Majestic, I may be wrong about that, theater uh, to play the title role in the new Bob Fosse musical. So there was a line down 45th Street and all the way down uh, 8th Avenue for like a block or two of all these guys. You know, this was the hippie period. So <laughs> all these guys with different weird long hair and beads and carrying guitars and and some straight actor types with their little photographs in there, you know. Uh, and I went in there and I sang my two Laura Nero songs in the pit, you know, played for myself. And they all leaned down and <laughs> listened and I sang up to them. <laughs> Um, and then I got up on the stage and I sang Corner of the Sky. And then they talked for a minute. It was just Stephen and, uh, and Bob and uh, Stuart Ostro, the chorus. And, and Roger, her son, who wrote the book. And then at the uh, I stood there for about a minute and then Bob came running down the aisle and said, part's yours if you want it. That was my dream, was to ever be on a Broadway stage. And for my first time to play the title role in a big musical and work with Bob. And I was, uh, I couldn't believe it. Kid grows up in New York, wants to be in the theater. Oh, he gets his first Broadway show. It's it Pippin. Well, that's why I think I asked you that question about when Fosse said the show was yours. That's not a common no. occurrence. No. That's a, that's no. a, that's The a... only other person who ever did that to me was Mike Nichols. And oh. <laughs> here you're talking about two of the greatest directors <laughs> in the history of the theater. And they were relaxed and normal. Yeah. They didn't, you know, have a thing about, well, my people will talk to your people and we'll see and blah, 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 blah. They said, hey, I want you to be in my show. Right. And, and again, that also speaks to the world that we live in now, right? Now you can't, be, oh, you have to go gosh. through all the right. appropriate yes. channels, which yeah. serves yeah. a value and a purpose. I understand that. But there are, it's harder to just yeah. say, look, I want to do this thing. Yeah. I want you. It's yours. But Fosse had a particular love of doing that because then I heard from other people that sometimes he would do that in the theater like he did with me. But, but when, but other times even after big dance auditions like which looked like a chorus line, you know, with people being cut and sent home and blah, 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 blah. And then everybody goes home exhausted and they hoped that they got the job. He would call them very often personally rather than having his producer call the agent and the agent calling their client. He would call them, hi, this is Bob, you know, yeah. you got the part. Because he loved that moment. He knew what it meant. first cut for a lot of his, it's in all that jazz film, you do a passe jump across the floor diagonally. And he would stand at the door, so you're jumping towards him, and the open door. Um, and so if he cut you, he would say, thank you very much for coming, and shake your hand. Everyone. They say that I won't last too long on Somebody like that who calls you personally to tell you I have the show? Well, that seems rare too. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and when and then during our break, 
he was auditioning for Big Deal. So I showed up. And he said, oh, I can't remember, one of the Broadway houses. And he walks over to me, he's like, Jane, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I just wanted to audition for a new show for you, Bob. And he's like, okay, you can stay. <laughs> so he let me stay. And I get all the way through. But again, he called me. And I happened to be home that time. And just said, he used to call me Janie, and he's like the only person that I allowed to call me Janie. Um, he said, I want to keep you in charity. And I broke down crying. I'm so seemingly always crying, but I'm not. But um, um, he's like, why are you crying? You know? And I said, well, I just wanted to do, you know, create something new. Rhythm of life, the two of the guys, the assistants were on their back, um, kind of walking on their shoulders backwards. And so one had a tank shirt on, so he was getting a bit of, you know, a burn. And so Bob took his sweater off and gave it to him. <laughs> so those are the kind of right. things that you probably don't hear a lot about. Mm -hmm. You hear about all the other stuff. I met Gwen first, and I was doing um, a benefit for American Dance Machine, and I don't know if you know the format, that is hit numbers from uh, Broadway musicals, and there's always a host. And she and Cheetah Rivera were hosting it up in New Haven, Connecticut at the Schubert. And I'd never met either one of them. And I had gone to, I had made it to the callback for the women's, um, I finally got it, I went to the men's open call and then I went to the women's callback, they called me back. And I got into the theater that night and immediately Gwen didn't even introduce herself, she just walked up to me and she said, there's a step in the show you're gonna hate. And she just, in that little funny voice, you know, and she um, started talking to me like I had a job. And I said, oh, Miss Verdon, Ver I, I just had an audition. I have no idea if I have a callback or anything. And um, she just, we had a whole weekend of shows. So the next day she came by my dressing room and knocked on the door and asked, you know, could she come in? And I was like, of course you can come in, Miss Miss, yes, please. <laughs> and she came in and she said that Bob might want to see you again. And she handed me a little torn off corner of an envelope with Fossey, Minskoff, and a phone number on it. She said, call him Monday morning and he might want to see you again. But if he does, here's what you have to wear. And then she redressed me from head to toe in a much hotter, tougher... She kind of put me in what they're wearing in Chicago. She knew. <laughs> she knew. And it, folklore turns out, I found out later that, you know, oh, I, that Bob had said, when she said, did you hire Mimi? He said, Mimi who? And she said, Mimi, you know. That, and he said, oh, Gwen, she's a good dancer, but she looks terrible. <laughs> so then, and then Gwen would say, you never knew how to dress until I told you what to wear. And I thought, well, I don't know if that's really true. But I, I'm very grateful that you told me what to wear. So I went back the next week and auditioned for him and did the entire chorus call all by myself. And then at the end of it, he just said, are these all your phone numbers? And I thought, Is this in, isn't this in a film? You know, and I said, yeah, you can call me. And I, I went in one more time and I was hired. I went into the Edison where old Calcutta was still playing. And it was he and um, Cy Coleman. And they, um, it was so funny. It was like, Mimi, this is Cy, Bob, this is, I was like, well, hi, guys. <laughs> and I sang Take Back Your Mink from Guys and Dolls. Like, that's like the worst song in the world. It turns out Bob hated that musical, but it, I think. But anyway, um, he hired me. was the dance step she said you were going to hate the slope which the slope. is the the step that you see them doing in the in the rich man's fruit the, right where they're sort of hunched laying back yeah they're laying yeah, they're like yeah, yeah. their backs are it's a it is a backbreaker yeah is it literally oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah i bet that whole number is a backbreaker yeah, yeah it is but it's so much fun to do especially with a live orchestra i mean it just that music is fabulous <laughs> Thank you. 
say what you will about the film, but that number is beautifully shot in oh, the film. Yes. I mean, it's gorgeous. And you know, one of the folklores that Gwen uh, it told me is that um, they didn't have a movable cam at that point, and so he was in a shopping cart that she was pushing him around in to make all those to film those shots. Oh my God! And you know, I. Yeah, and, and I also remember Bob saying in, in pre-production when it was just the three of us that he, and he wasn't egotistical in the sense that he would say, I invented MTV. But remember, in the 80s, the, the videos, can you remember you know, the videos from then? The, what they would call, they were called jump shots. You know, one, it would go flash from one thing to another, which has thus shortened everyone's attention span down to almost zero. Mm-hmm. But in the Frug, he does those. Mm. Yeah. And he said, I created that. In Los Angeles, when we rehearsed, Gwen was teaching us the fruit. Bob had kind of picked who was going to do what, where, and then he left. So for four straight days, eight-hour days, we did the frug, and everything turned in. And one morning, I rolled out of bed onto the floor and crawled on my hands and knees into the shower because I couldn't walk. Because it was so opposite, and my body was just... And I was in, you know, perfect shape then. So when you say turned in, so when you dance ballet, are you turned out? And with Fosse, particularly in the frug, everything's turned inward. Yes, with ballet, you're turned out almost always. And with him, you're either parallel um, or turned in. So he would use both. Occasionally, like in a Blackbird, we start in a ballet first position, and it is more ballet, but then he goes to parallel or an actual turned-in mm-hmm. position. So your hips are rotating both ways. <laughs> right. Yay. <laughs> oh, the PT bills. Right. Yes. <laughs> oh and the massage yeah. bills, yes. The massage bills, yeah. But that helps. In rehearsal at one point, I said, hey, Bob, um, I'm playing the title role in a Bob Fosse musical, and you don't have me dancing. And he said, but, John, you can't dance. <laughs> I said, I'm aware of that, but what can we do? And he made that number on the right track, which is one of the numbers. And he had Ben Vereen dance around me and try to teach me to dance as a way, uh, as a metaphor for pulling me back into the swing of things because I was depressed. And he, I, we danced. I actually had to, to do a pirouette and do all this stuff. Uh, but the whole point was that I couldn't dance. Why be flurried? Flustered, keep those hopes aloft. Keep cool as custard, trying hard, stepping soft. There's no trick to staying sensible, despite each call de sac, cause each step's indispensable when you're Mr. Fossing never left people with egg on their face. Our job as choreographers are to make the performer or the dancer look brilliant, not to make us look brilliant, mm. because if they don't, you don't. Right. And if you make them feel a certain way about themselves, something given to you, you know, we all give gifts to our loved ones for a reason, you know. Well, sometimes it's obligatory, but, but basically you give that because it's something from you to someone and it's not to everyone. And that's one thing a director or a choreographer can give to an, to an actor or an actress, a dancer, singer, a uh, performer. They can give them something that's going to make them, you know, as he says, you know, if you stick with this, I, I can't make you a great dancer, but I'll make you a better one. How heartbreaking would it be, and this is not to dog any of us Mm. who were involved in anything he did, but how heartbreaking must it be that he sees something now that he didn't see then, but if he had seen it then, what would now look like? Mm. That's someone who thinks in the process, someone who works in the process, and the end result is because you did the process. One of the things of, of Mr. Fossey's work, in my opinion, is not just about the steps. It's where they come from, why are they, what's the story, what's behind it. Um, 
if you don't get to give that to someone, they may or may not shine. And then you get to get in there and go, you know, if you it tweak, and all of a sudden they go, ding, ding, I get it. That's exciting for a creator. What do you think it is that makes Bob Fosse's choreography so distinctive? Because you have to act it. Now, that's not to say you don't have to act Agnes de Mills or, ba- well, no, Balanchine's not a good choice because he was known for the abstract ballet, but, or so many other um, choreographers, but it was so specific. And, he, and Bob would even admit, sometimes when we would be working on, um, say, auditioning just one person for something, and they would come in and do it, and he would say, that's, there's really nothing to that dance. But, you know, so you would realize it had to be acted, so, um, not to say there weren't technical, there was tons of technical stuff in it, but every moment is acted. And so a, a number like, if my, if, you're, if my friends could see me now, there are so many wonderful references. It's like, what that builds like a monologue when it's properly done. If they could see me now, that little gang of mine. I'm eating fancy chow and drinking fancy wine I'd like those stumbo bums to see for a fact The kind of top drawer, first-rate chums I attract All I can say is, wow, we look at where I am Tonight I landed, pow, right in a pot of jam What a setup, holy cow They'd never believe it if my friends could see me now and in it are, you know, Gwen would say to me, here's Art Carney shooting his cuffs, you know, right before she pops the hat on one hip and she does a little wrist thing, you know, that's Art Carney shooting his cuffs. This is Reginald Van Gleeson strutting, putting his hat on and strutting up the stage. This is Schnaj Durante, you know, when the first struts. So there's there's all these references, and then there's there's Groucho Marx going, right. you know, going around. And Chaplin so, isn't Chaplin in there? Yeah, there, and there's Chaplin in everything Gwen does. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and she she would explain it to me, you know, you scoot along on your heels, and then you grab the door frame, and you swing your hips around, and shake your behind like a like a little fat girl who has to pee. So there were always these images that you played, and if you played the images and not the literal, you, yeah, you had to play the literal choreography, but your body was going to do that, right. you know? That's what makes the That's what makes that's it, what makes it that's so different. It. Yeah. And because it's got a, the, the shapes are cartoonish. You don't perform it as an artist in a cartoon manner, but if I sometimes say when I'm teaching it, think cartoon when you make these shapes, and don't try to be sexy. You either, as Gwen would say, you either are or you aren't. Bob would say, let them come to you. And so if you do that, you leave space for the audience. Mm. So if I'm not acting sexy when I do Big Spender, I allow you to say, oh, that blonde is really hot. Or, and I remember the first time I saw Danson, way before I ever even thought I'd get to work with him, and I, I would go, oh, I love that dancer and that dancer. Oh, they're so hot. They're, but they weren't telling me they were hot. They let me come to them. They left room for me. And that's what Bob, that's the way Bob directed it. That's why it worked. One of my favorite parts of Fosse's choreography is almost the simplicity. Because it can appear to be simple until you try it. Because he isolates two to four parts of your body at the same time. So your shoulder's doing one thing, your hip is doing another, your head is doing something else. And that's what I love. And I love teaching it, because it's like, I'm like, okay, get in this position, now walk. And they're like, what? (laughs) And everyone laughs. The Fosse style is so unique. 
You know, I mean, everyone's talked about this, but he didn't, you know, he didn't have the ballet turned out, so we turned in. He didn't like his hands, so we wore the gloves. He was balding, so we put the hats on. But I love that he took his faults, or what he thought were his faults, and made it into a positive, and this incredible style that no one else has ever done. My name is Jennifer. My name is Rima. My name is Danny. My name is Autumn. My name is Sandy. My name is Josh. My name is Sandy. My name is Gary. And don't forget about our group fun, fun, fun class. By the mid-1970s, Bob Fosse was an undisputed king of the entertainment industry, having become the first and only artist to ever win an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony Award in the same year. Still, there was something nagging at him, especially following the runaway success of Michael Bennett's A Chorus Line in 1975, which had eclipsed his last original collaboration with Gwen, Chicago. In the years after, he'd openly confessed to confidants, how do you call yourself a choreographer when you never did a ballet? And so, he created a new musical song and dance entertainment called Dancin', which took Broadway by storm in 1978 and became the second longest-running show he worked on in his lifetime, after Pippin, running from 1978 to 1982 and launching two national tours from 1979 to 1983. A daring show reflecting his sole authorship, it had no book and few lyrics, but was an unabashed celebration of dance, ranging from tap to dance to ballet, all in that distinctive Fosse style. If the movie All That Jazz would be the autobiography of his life, Danson was the autobiography of his choreography. It's never been revived, there was no cast recording, and little video exists online, so it's easy to forget about Danson, but it was an important show in his career, his ballet, and remains a major part of his legacy. Danson. 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 Come and see Dancer, a new musical song and dance entertainment. I got a phone call from him saying, can you meet me at the Ambassador Theater? Well, I had no idea where that was, because, you know, <laughs> nothing's ever in the Ambassador Theater, right? Because right? it's a, a triangle. Funny, there's something there now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's a theater, not... Right, not always funk went forever, but right. usually it's. Kind right. of a, it's, it's, it's I didn't know he says on 49th Street. I was like, right. I just never knew that place. And so I went there, and we're looking at this theater, and he says, "Do you think that we can get the show in here?" And I went, "Yeah," because that's just me. And he says, "But we're two feet or four feet short." Yeah, and you know where are we going to put you know the the bandstand. Fly it. He's like, this is Jeopardy here. <laughs> what can you do with a bandstand? Fly it. You fly it. And he says, but, you know, what will it look like? You know, it would be cramped. I thought, well, you know what, the Broadhurst, where it's, the Broadhurst is low. Mm. And so, therefore, the audience is kind of like high up to it. And this is not so much. It's like a normal theater in a sense. The only part of that theater is normal, you know, because it's triangle. And, and we go like this. So looking down this way, you get to see more patterns than you may have done at the Broadhurst. So, yeah. You're going to, you're literally going to see as much, if maybe not more. And they said, really? And I'm yeah, I think so. I wanted a job. Uh, I didn't want to end. And, uh, <laughs> and it was like, oh, God, this is going to be great because it's going to be new. It's going to be uh, new, you know. They were going to make changes in costumes and whatever. You know, we were, we were refurbishing and we were going to hit it. And he and Gwen were coming in with, along with Christopher Chapman um, and were going to play play wherever they could play, mm. you know, and, and, and work with people. Some people who, like Richard Cortez was, was in the show originally, um, and, and he played, uh, Christopher played it originally, but uh, R Richard took over. The old Bojangles, 
Mm-hmm. And Bill Hastings was the spirit. And they were working in the lobby, which is on, on an angle. And they were working, and Mr. Fossey and Miss Verdon were there working and working. Just because she had known Bill f- for 100 years. Bob was just getting to know him. Of course, know Richard forever. And you couldn't get them out of the lobby. Because it's all those details. And Richard, of course, is like this amazing man, and both of them are, but it's just you have a, you have a new spirit and you have the old guy, and how do we make this work? And that's the process. And literally trying, we need to move on, really not so much. Because these are, as you called them, nuggets. You know, they're gems. They're these moments that make you, as an audience, watch the show without you even knowing that maybe that's why you're watching the show. Right, right. You don't, you're, not, you're not actually in on that You're process not in or, on that process, but the, because the process happened, right. you are in on the glory of it. We got gorgeous girls, handsome men. We got spins, leaps, jumps, cartwheels, and other incredible body gyrations that I am not allowed to mention on television. Dancing at the Broadhurst Theater, directed by Bob Fosse. To be able to take dancing from a theater and move it to a new theater was an opportunity to do new. When you said um, he would change things in dancing, mm. was that dancer specific? So a new dancer would come in and he would change something for that particular person's yeah. talent? Yeah, well, well or that, that person excited him or that person, you know, was doing, uh, you know, Miss Ranking got to do trumpet solo, but Lydia Barca did it and she's totally different and Janet Elber is totally different. You know, Marianne New, Keep Going, Barbara Yeager, all of those ladies, they're, they're all, you know, and Gail Benedict, all of them are were different. And so when he got to work with them, he would, you know, get to play with them. He loved playing. The end result was not as exciting as the process. <laughs> Ever. That's really interesting. Yeah, because to try to get him to come see a show afterwards is like, ay, it's really hard. I get it. Now that I direct and I choreograph, I understand. Because once you let it go and it opens, <laughs> the children take it. Ah, gotcha! thought I didn't see you now, didn't you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You tried to sneak by me now, didn't you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now give me what you promised to me. Give it to me. Come on. Promise me the day that you quit your girlfriend. That I'd be the next one to move on in. You promised me it would be just us two. And I'd be the only one kissing on you. Kiss me, hold it a long time, hold it. Oh, don't turn me loose now, hold it. A little bit longer now, hold it. Come on, hold it. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Don't be greedy now, get back. When we sat down with Betty Buckley back in August, she shared the story of how she came to be cast as the replacement Catherine in the original Broadway run of Pippin and how she got to know and work with her idol, Bob Fosse. This show came out, Pippin. So I called my agent, and I had a super agent, Eric Shepard at Ashley Famous, which then became ICM, but he was a, a power broker agent, and I was very lucky to be signed by him when I was a junior in college. So I called Eric, and I said, look, I hear there's this show, Pippin and Fosse's doing it, blah, 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 I gotta be up for that. He said, oh, there's no part for you, Betty. And I was like, what do you mean? There has to be. No, it's Bob Fosse. He's <laughs> like, well, no, there's nothing. All right, so I go see Pippin, and, of course, Jill Clayburg, wonderful Jill Clayburg, is doing Catherine. And I'm like, what? There is a part, and Jill Clayburg's doing it. And she's Eric's client, too. Why did this happen? I call him, and I say, Eric. And he said, they didn't want to see you, Betty. And I said, what do you mean? I have to meet Fosse. It's everything to me. You don't understand. <laughs> and he goes, they don't want to see you. And I'm like, okay. So six months go by. And there's this uh, great, great prop guy who also was on Cats with me and, you know, just a genius guy. And he sees me on the street and he says, Betty, are you going in for Pippin? And I'm like, what? And he says, Jill's leaving and you've got to audition for Pippin. And I'm like, what? So I, I call Eric and he goes, they don't want to see you, Betty. <laughs> so a few days later, I get a letter 
from Michael Shirtliff, who was the casting guy. Miss Buckley, um, our prop man Merlin says that you would be interested in coming in for Pippin. And, um, you know, your agent told us you were out of the business. And uh, we would like to see you Wednesday. Mr. Fossey looks forward to meeting you, and Miss Rosho sends his love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I call Eric. I'm like, Eric? And he goes, oh, Betty, for Christ's sake, don't be so naive. He said, I didn't send you in because, you know, I could get $150 more a week for Jill. So I went in, and I got to sing and dance and everything for Bob Fosse, and I was like, oh, this is like a dream come true, and they cast me in. He came back and directed me into the show instead of having the stage manager put me in, which was incredible. And I learned so many wonderful things, like, one day he comes up, and he was really funny because he would smoke cigarettes constantly and they would burn down to his lip. And there would be like, I don't know how he did this, but there would be like at least an inch or an inch and a half of ash still attached to the cigarette mm-hmm. on his lip. And I was like, how does he keep that balanced? You know? And he never wanted to make eye contact. So he's always, and I'm always like, and this is the Texas girl thing, you know, trying to be in his eyes, you know, like trying to get his eyes. So I was always dancing around him to try to be sure I saw him <laughs> straight on. And he was always a- avoiding that. It was really funny. And so one day, he, though, he, he comes back and he used to give me these beautiful notes about my performance as Catherine. I learned so much. And he came in and he said, Betty, I said, yes, sir. And he said, "Um, you're a very uh, talented young woman. I said, thank you. And he says, and you're a very supple performer. I said, thank you. And he said, but, he said, you're a little too polished sometimes. And he said, so when you feel good about what you're doing, just think about this. It's probably wrong. I don't want anyone around me telling me what I did, I want to do. And it was... Not the first time I had heard that. When we did the revival of Pajama Game with Hal Linden, Barbara McNair, Cab Calloway, Willard Waterman, Mary Jo Catlin, keep going, keep going, um, there was a question of the show because he had just opened Pippin. And he was overheard because we were in the wings all going, we're going to be fired. And it was, I have no idea what I did in 1954, but if you'd like me to do something new. So... From my experience, which a lot of my experience is different than a lot of other people's experiences, which is great, but I'm not going to change my tune about that. He didn't want to recreate. I mean, he took Sweet Charity, I'm sure you've heard this, and he took like 20-some-odd minutes out of it, you know, because in 1965 and in 1986, it's just, or 85, it's different, people's attention span or whatever, and he was great at doing that. Um, you know, and, and Gwen remembered what she did. She was, you know, she was charity. I probably knew everything. Um, their working together on that was great fun to watch. Mm. I was in the women's dressing room in, in L.A., and it was empty, and I was taking a little nap, and I heard someone in the room, and I just thought, oh, it's somebody back early from dinner, it's wardrobe, it's... But then it was like, wait a minute, something made me get up and look, and it was Bob. And Bob was not touching anything, but he was going through the dressing room looking at each one of our dressing tables, which is kind of creepy and also kind of really lovely, You know, it was just like Bob. I mean, it was like so wrong and so right at the same time. You know, you just couldn't resist him. And I saw him and he just looked at me. We looked at each other through the mirror and and he just said, you know, I just love seeing all your photographs and stuffed animals and where you sit. And he loved women, you know. So um, he, he was a little taken aback. And then he just said... Uh, Gwen tells me that you can sing Big Spender with a lit cigarette in your mouth. And I said, well, (laughs) yes, I can. I don't know if I could, but I thought, well, if Gwen says I can, I can. I know what she's doing. Because she was doing that all the time. Oh, that, that, there's a wink on that beat. You do it. You you know, she was always threading lovely little things and shooting them my way. You you do that. You do that. And and to other people. But yes, I was treated a little bit. But, you know, doing extra work. So anyway, um, he then said to me, here's how you do it. And he, and he did his you know, classic cigarette. Of course, we could smoke anywhere those days. And he lit up in the dressing room and he tucked it in the, his molars, you know, on, in the back and said like this. And I remember saying, can I smoke a 100? 
because I didn't want it that close to my face. And he said, well, I don't, uh, 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 I don't know if they had them back then. And I thought, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> um, but I did wind up smoking one, 120s because it was that. It would just burn, you know? And especially when the curtain came up, you, you, this, this was a few numbers into the show, but you're still getting the backwash of the um, air conditioning coming at you, the air. And so during Big Spender, there was a whoosh that would happen, and I would have tears running down my eyes because the smoke is going in it, and you can't blink during that number. And and the um, But I did that, and I, it was Anne Ryan King, when she came into the show, she said, you know, he gave you that cigarette, and if I were you, I'd have the fire engines coming after me. Smoke it. And, and you know, I was still trying out how to smoke it in the number, but she was the one that said to me, he gave it to you, use it. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender. So refined Say, wouldn't you like to know What's going on in my mind So let me get right to the point I don't pop my cork for every guy I see When you were staring and you were looking, we were looking into the 12th row of the orchestra. Oh, you all looked into the same we row? We all looked into the same row, but straight ahead of ourselves. So there was this sort of bending of reality. It was, there was one, and there's one customer. And, but we all look straight ahead at that one customer. And the only time we all sort of gather and you appear to be looking at the same person is when they all run to the edge of the bar and it's um, to, on stage left. And it's the, called the amoeba, where they slink along and then they break up. What do you say to a... Hey, how's about a... Laugh. I could give you some. Are you ready for some... Fun. How would you like a... Let me show you a... Good time. Hey, big spender. That number, as far as his choreography, you can learn all the moves, and if you don't do that number from inside, it's not worth it, and it doesn't work. Bob would go down the line in rehearsal, and he, would, and he whispered in our ear, pick me, which was very interesting. Um, <laughs> Because again, it was okay. How many meanings are there? But um, but but he was also when we the pick me was when we would sing me me and the and our lips had to be like a a combination of a kiss and saying pick me. It had to be internal pick me pick me. Why why I needed to be picked and and so he really pitched us against each other to compete. And even though that was a particularly close cast, we were pitched against each other to compete, and it was fun. We would see what so-and-so had come up with. Oh, I see. And we were all wearing those press-on nails, and our hair got bigger, and our boobs came up higher, and I mean, it was just fabulous. When we were given that number, I swear, every, the 10 of us in that revival, we almost broke parts of our bodies just to get into the most torqued positions we could find. We did it. I don't, you know, you would, Bob inspired that. You would do just about anything to make it work for him. 
if you were picked by him, you got to wear the mantle of being a Fosse dancer. And that was very special and that I will always have. And I feel proud of being able to wear that mantle. But there was also something you never did less than 300% for him. And it wasn't because he was demanding or, you know, hard on us. Because with charity, he was fantastic the whole time. And a gentleman. And he would, we're doing I Love to Cry to Weddings. And he's like, I want you to move, you know, three numbers to the left. And he would come up and take your hand and move you. Ask you to move. Um, So you wanted to be the best you could be for him, always, at all times. Um, And not in a, oh my God, I hope he likes me way, but because you were proud and you wanted to make him proud. For the most part, we were on the same wavelength and he was very respectful. Now, you know, he had his, his, uh, his reputation for going after the girls. So I'm not sure if all the women dancers and uh, I've been married to two of them, in fact, um, would would say he was respectful. I don't know. But from my vantage point, and not just to me, but sort of to everybody, including those women that he was attracted to, he 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 didn't act like like um, like he had all the answers, and it was your job to somehow glean what they were and come up with them, either as a dancer or as an actor or as anybody else. We were working together, and that was extremely uplifting. And I can't say that every director has has treated me that way or or in their sort of work uh, mode treats everybody else like that. He was respectful, he was sweet, he was funny. And yet he, he knew exactly what he was doing. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned for more with Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon next week. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and the Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman and Charles Van Kirk. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.